just going to read uh, verse 4, because that's going to be our focus, and at some point I'll be developing the context of verse 4. So let's just look at Psalm 8 and verse 4. It asks the question, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Heavenly Father, Lord, as we come to this great question, Father, we do pray for your grace that, Father, you would teach us, that, Father, you would give us attention uh, to the details of this, Father, uh, for it is, uh, certainly is warm in here. And, uh, Father, we recognize it's been a long week for many of us, and our minds are a bit fatigued, but the, the, the study at hand is not an easy study. And, Father, we ask that you would be pleased to bless us with concentration, that we'd be able to concentrate, that we would be able to benefit, Father, from your word on this uh, crucial and important issue of who we are. So, Father, to these ends, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. Obviously, I think you can see where we're going here. The question that I want to take up this morning is really just a, th a three-word question. What is man? Uh, the question is asked by the Old Testament in several places. Actually, twice in the Psalms, Psalm 144 and verse 3 it almost says exactly the same thing as Psalm 8.4. It says, O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? And the question comes up twice in the book of Job. Uh, so the, the question is asked uh, in the Old Testament, a very important question. It's a question that's been asked by mankind uh, probably since... Uh, uh, the inception, at least since the fall of mankind. It's been a question that every generation has asked and pondered. And our culture uh, answers this question in several ways. I think maybe one of the most popular ways that our culture answers this question is, is what is man? Uh, the response would be you're a bag of chemicals. Uh, we've probably heard that before. Uh, you're a bag of chemicals, uh, uh, the focus is on the, uh, the human body. And what is man? Well, we're a body, uh, a bag of chemicals. And the thoughts are that um, most or majority of our problems are the result of the chemistry not being quite right. And that's the emphasis on trying to get the chemistry correct. Uh, and uh, one day the hope is that science will have it completely figured out to where all of our problems can be alleviated simply by adjusting the body chemistry. So the, the idea is that we are a bag of chemicals. Uh, well, uh, we can say that there's some truth to that. Um, uh, please don't take no offense if I say, well, it is true. You are a bag of chemicals. I don't mean any offense. Uh, uh, same thing is true to me. We, we are a bag of chemicals. If your intention is to become a medical doctor and you're not very good at chemistry, you might be in, in for some troubles. Um, chemistry has a lot to do with our makeup. Uh, but we're more than that, aren't we? Uh, another answer, which is really, uh, it's an ancient answer, uh, it, it actually uh, kind of swerves in the opposite side of the road, if you will, and says, oh, what is man? Man is a soul. That's what man is. He's a, he's a soul. And uh, to the many of the ancient Greek philosophers, 
Uh, the spiritual side of things was the high side. It was the real side. It was the great side. It was the side that we should aspire to. Uh, that we are uh, uh, mankind as a soul. He could discard his body and still be uh, human. In fact, it would be good to discard of the body because it was uh, seen uh, by many that the body was nothing more than a prison, if you will, uh, for the soul. And that salvation was seen by discarding the body, uh, getting rid of the body. And, of course, we can see that there is indeed a little bit of truth to that as well. Uh, we do each have a soul, don't we? Uh, we would, where we would say, okay, all right, I, I concede we're a bag of chemicals, but we're more than a bag of chemicals. Uh, we could say the same thing, we concede that we are a soul, uh, but we're more than a soul. We have bodies. You know, when, you know if, if we pass from this life before Jesus returns, uh, we will be disembodied souls entering into what we call an intermediate state where we will exist. If you're a believer, you will go immediately to heaven before the presence of Christ. Hear the great words, well done, good and faithful servant, which will be a glorious melody to your ears. And you will reside there uh, in soul. Your soul will reside there awaiting the resurrection of our bodies. This program is not finished until the body has been resurrected. And we can conclude from that that, yes, we are a soul, but we're more than a soul. We're what we call, and I'll throw a word at you that you may encounter from time to time. It's a technical word, but we are a psychosomatic unity. Uh, psyche is the beginning. It's the Greek word for soul. Think of the word psychology. Uh, it, psyche at the beginning of that word. It says psychology really is the study of the soul which is ironic that many in psychiatry, uh, many in the disciplines of psychiatry and psychology would discount that we even have a soul. Uh, but uh, there's an indictment to that even in the very name of the practice. Psychology is a study of the soul that we're not even supposed to have. Uh, this, of course, is a broad brush, a broad stroke. It doesn't speak of everybody in that discipline. So let me be fair there. Uh, nor am I really trying to throw a stone at those disciplines. Don't take me that way. Uh, Psyche and soma. Soma is the Greek word for body. So we're a psychosomatic unity. In other words, we're a unity of body and soul. Uh, you take away our bodies and it's subhuman. Uh, the, the, the intermediate state is exactly what it suggests. It's an intermediate state. It's not the end. To exist in a disembodied state is a temporary thing. Uh, we wait for these glorified bodies. We are a a body-soul unity. A body-soul unity. Now there are others in our culture, they would say that what is man, they would answer the question by saying that man is a lucky animal. Uh, a higher functioning primate, if you will. Uh, we have nails on our hands and uh, nails on our fingers, nails on our feet, uh, short snouts, and large brains. That's the criteria, from what I understand, of being a primate. And uh, we are a higher functioning primate, uh, a lucky animal, or might I say a lucky monkey. Uh, lucky monkeys. Uh, uh, perhaps uh, uh, some of us give more credence to that theory than others, I don't know, but that's just a, 
just a joke, uh, trying to keep you laughing in this heat here. Um, lucky monkeys, you know. That's what we are. We're lucky monkeys. Uh, well, I, I, I don't suppose anybody here uh, has fallen into that, but uh, that is a common, there's actually a common view as to what is man. I hope that you're with me, that you don't find any of these answers fully satisfying. And um, I want to bring your recollection to last time when I, I really, last time, I, it really, in many respects, last week's sermon, I was speaking not just to a congregation of believers, but I'm speaking to all of humanity. With this series, that's what I'm attempting to do is speak to all humanity. There's a lot of people listening to these sermons online, and I presume that there are people listening to these sermons online who have different viewpoints than our own, and I'm trying to speak to that. So I speak to all humanity, both those who would profess to believe in Christ, as well as those who would not profess to believe in Christ. And what I want to do is I want to suggest a starting point, as I suggested last time. Instinctively, last time, drawing from Romans chapter 1 and verses 19 and 20, I suggested the biblical truth that all of us believe that there is a God. The Apostle Paul tells us that we all know that there's a God because God has made this plain to us through what has been made. And I want to suggest to you another starting point for this morning, a starting point to all human beings, is that we realize we are something special. Now, I'm putting it this way first because some of you might be thinking, that doesn't sound too good. We realize we're something special. We try to do our best to not sound like we realize we're something special. You're suggesting that we realize we're something. Yeah, I'm suggesting we realize we're something special. Much of our problem is we want to be more special than we are because we're comparing ourselves to everyone else. And we say, well, this, this person over here is real special. And I'm not quite as special as that person. And I wish I was as special as that person. And, and then we get into all kind of a mess there, don't we? I'm not suggesting that's true of all of us, equally so, uh, but I am suggesting that that might be, uh, that we might be on to the scent of something that could be happening in some of our hearts. We realize that we're something special. Uh, I want to suggest that this way to start, because there's a pride problem here. Last week we looked at that phrase that secular humanism embraces so readily that man is the measure of all things. How could we ever embrace such a concept, whether we embrace it tightly or we embrace it loosely? How could we ever embrace such a concept as that without a little bit of pride? But I want to go further than that this morning. I want to go beyond that, and I want to say that we realize that we're something significant. And that's not all wrong. We realize that we're something significant, and we realize that for a reason. And Psalm 8.4 points us to the reason. If you look at Psalm 8.4, in fact, if we back up and we look at Psalm 8.3, as we looked at last week, the psalmist and the congregation, this singer, remember the genre, remember the context. The genre of this psalm is a hymn. There's a multitude of people singing. This is a hymn. Uh, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place... Uh, presumably they're looking up at the, at the stars or they were recalling when they've looked up at the stars. And I've had friends who served in Desert Storm and friends who have served in the Iraqi war. 
friends who have been overseas, and I've talked with them. I've never been there myself, but I've talked with them, and they have shared with me that there are there the nights, the the, be- the stars are unimaginable at night. So uh, here they're looking at the stars. They're looking at the heavens. Uh, you know, you you might this afternoon or when you have leisure. Get on the internet and just just do a search. Pictures from outer space. And just, just give you a, a little incentive to do that. The pictures are breathtaking. Of the various nebulae and various phenomena that we have uh, photographed uh, in, the, in the heavenly places are absolutely stunning and breathtaking. Uh, if... The psalmist and his singers could have saw all of that. How much more would they be looking at that and asking the question, oh, and the, and the likes of all of this, we're like this big. What is man that you even have an inkling of regard for him? The son of man that you should care for him. But then notice verse 5 and 5 through 8. Yet, see the word yet there? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor, given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, fish of the sea. Now, many of us, some of us have read the whole Bible. Probably all of us have attempted to read the whole Bible. Many people have said, you know, I'm going to read the whole Bible. And if you've made any attempt at that at all, uh, you should have at least completed Genesis 1, right? Surely we made it through Genesis 1. And when we made it through Genesis 1, we might say to ourselves, you know something, uh, this sounds familiar. This sounds like something I've read once before. This sounds like, uh, like that chapter all the way at the beginning. Well, let's turn there. Keep your place in Psalm 8. Toss your bulletin in Psalm 8. Turn with me back to Genesis 1. We'll start by looking at verses 26 and 27. And we'll see that the psalmist and the singers are are directly recalling this creative account. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Who is God talking to? I think uh, not all would agree with what I'm about to say, but I think the the best way to take this is to see this as an inter-Trinitarian conversation. That the Father is having a conversation with the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, some say He's speaking with angels. I, I don't take that point of view uh, because of what follows. We're uh, here, the context, we're being made after the, a likeness, after an image. Whose likeness? Whose image? God's likeness. God's image. Uh, because of that reason, I believe that God is speaking to the Father, is speaking to the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's an inner Trinitarian conversation taking place. And what are they discussing? Let's make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And say, well, you know, I, I do. I see some resemblance of Psalm 8 here, don't we? And the, and the yet. You remember the yet that I pointed out in Psalm 8, 5? Yet. The psalmist is looking at the creation. Sun, the moon, the stars. Perhaps they were able to see Orion. Maybe see the Helix Nebulae a little bit, maybe. And they're seeing these things. And they're saying, what are, 
What is man that you're mindful of him? Yet, yet you have crowned him. What are they referring to? We've been made in the image of God. There is something significant about us. And I suggest it as a starting point as we reach out to people who are around us. This is a starting point. Listen, we realize that we're significant. Even when we're down, even when people are down, there's still, you can, you can suppress that truth with all kinds of things. That's a story for another day. But we still, deep down inside, we realize that we're significant. Our behavior gives us away every second of every day. We realize that we're significant deep down. Why is that? It's because we realize we're different than the rest of the creation. And why are we different than the rest of the creation? It's because we've been made in the Imago Dei, the Latin for the image of God. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, there's a lot of answers that have been given. I know many of you have ESV study Bibles. So I thought I would look there early on this week to see what the note would be in Genesis 1.26. And it does a very good job, actually, of, of reducing a, a body of literature that could fill this room and reducing it down into, you know, this little, like, three or four sentences or how many sentences there are. And it gives a list of things. It says uh, the list that the, there's dominion, reason, morality, language, relationship, and commitment, uh, creativity. That's a start of a list. Now, let me explain that. There's a methodology that's here in coming up with these things. And the methodology goes like this. Uh, in the creation account, only man is said to be created in the image of God. What is the image of God? We don't know. But perhaps this is how we can figure it out. Let's look at the rest of the creatures that have been made. Let's try to determine their characteristics. Let's take a look at our own characteristics and let's subtract their characteristics from our characteristics. And the characteristics that we have left should bring us into the scent of what it means to be created in the image of God. Does that sound, does that sound reasonable? That's a pretty sound way to go about it, correct? So here we have this collection of attributes that is said uh, that we have that the rest of uh, the creatures on the earth do not have. The first one would be dominion. And this is how, this is indeed how some uh, would view the image of God. What is the Imago Dei? What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, it means to have dominion. That's the answer that they give. It means to have dominion. Okay, is that all there is to it? We're told that, the, that, uh, uh, that mankind is given dominion of this earth. Is that what it means? Uh, I would submit to you that that falls short, uh, that that falls uh, very short, uh, because I think really the dominion is something that has been given to mankind uh, as he has been created. Uh, it's a more, many, many scholars call it an investure, if that helps you any. Um, we could look at the, the sun and the moon, for instance. They've been given dominion. Uh, they're inanimate. They're, they're not living, uh, but they have dominion. They rule, the, they rule the day and they rule the night. And I think we could even say in the wilderness, there are creatures that have been given more dominion than other creatures. Just go try to rob a bear of her cubs. 
and you will see who has dominion and who doesn't have dominion very quickly. So I don't think that dominion in itself can carry the freight here. I think it's part of it, but I don't think it can carry the freight. Others have said reason, you know, reason. You know, mankind has reason. The creatures do not have reason. I, I disagree with that. I couldn't disagree. I've been reading that for years, and I've been disagreeing with that for years, and I'll tell you why. We're able to teach animals to do things. If they didn't have the ability to reason, they'd be unteachable. You have to be able to reason to be able to be taught. It's just a prerequisite. So I would say that the creatures, in varying degrees, share reason. On a lower level, of course. But they share in that. And we might say morality. Here's one. Morality. I mean, animals, do they have... Do animals have a sense of right and wrong? I would submit that they do. Again, on a much lesser level. But they do. I can tell you right now, when my dog has slipped up, I know as soon as I walk through the door. Now, some of us say, well, he only know that because uh, he's afraid of uh, losing his reward. He's afraid of being punished. I don't abuse my dog. I don't abuse him. I open the door, and he's happy to see me briefly, and then it's, mm. <laughs> He knows he's done something he shouldn't have done. I mean, I just, I just, I'm not willing to take that away from him. Some of you have animals, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. And furthermore, I mean, it's been put in the animals. I mean, if it hadn't been put in the animals, it's been put in the animals for the most part. When you're out in the woods and you see a bear, generally speaking, the bear's not going to attack you. The bear's probably going to flee from you. And I'm not suggesting you go looking for them to prove that to be true. But God has ordained it in such a way that you know, as we're going to see as we go through this study, it is a really heinous crime to take the life of, to murder, if you will. I want to be careful that I use that word, to murder a person who's been created in the image of God. And that goes for wildlife as well. It's not a small thing even for wildlife to do that. You know, that, that poor uh, child that fell into that, uh, that canal in Florida, his life was taken by an alligator. Uh, that, that alligator committed a crime when it uh, took that child's life. That child is an image bearer of God. I submit that they have a sense of morality. It would vary among species, but it's their uh, language. I would also say that there's language. They, you know, you can teach a pet its name. Uh, my dog, if I say, do you want to go for a ride? I know he knows what that means because he, gets, he goes crazy. But the reason I know he knows what that means is because he runs to the closet where his leash is kept. And he looks straight up. That's the only place I keep his leash. He realizes we're going for a ride. You're going to put this leash on me, which I despise and hate, and I'm going to chew on it all the way to the car. But the next step is the leash. He knows what I'm talking about. So he has learned a little bit. Again, not as developed as we are, but still, I, I think they understand. And relationships. I mean, animals have the ability. But geese partner for life. We know that about geese. They partner for life. Creativity. Someone might say, oh, creativity. There's one, you know, creativity. You know, in my work through the county, uh, one thing that I've observed is in, in a lot of people's backyards, there are bird feeders. Some of them are elaborate and beautiful. And, and actually, in some yards, it's almost like a mini aviary. 
back there. And, and people like to watch birds. They find a lot of relaxation in doing that. You, you want to know, when you find a, a, an elaborate bird feeder, you don't want to know what's usually very close around the elaborate bird feeder. is a group of chairs. That's where they sit and they watch. And I know from talking to people that a lot of people, what they really like about watching birds is listening to them. Some of them sing these extraordinary melodies. Are they creative? Absolutely, they're creative. I heard Derek Thomas developing this point in one of his talks a while back, and he said, listen, don't expect them to play some sonata in D minor, but they're still creative. They're still very creative. It's been a couple of weeks ago, but a couple of weeks ago in the evening as I was letting my dog outside, it, it rained, but not real hard. We had gotten just a little bit of moisture. It was at night. I turned the light on. I opened the door. And what did I see? I saw this spider web. This big, elaborate spider web fixed to the brick of our house. And the moisture, there, was just, there wasn't enough rain to, to wash it completely off the wall. But there was enough moisture for the for the, the, the spider web to get wet. And when the light hit it, it was gorgeous. I mean, I opened the door and I was struck by it. It must have been about this big. And it was absolutely gorgeous. I, I, a spider could just throw anything together and catch what he's desiring to catch. The spider doesn't need to do that. I would submit to you that that was a real work of art that that spider constructed. I think animals are creative. I'd say man has been invested in all these qualities in a higher way, but he still shares these qualities with other creatures. Now, part of being made in the image of God probably is all of this, because God is all of this. Uh, but is that only what's going on? I don't think so. I'm going to share a view with you, and I want you to take this as really just a view that I'm sharing with you. I'm, I'm not going to stand on this view as, uh, as dogmatically as I would stand on justification by faith or some of those other cardinal doctrines that there's no wiggle room on. But I want to throw this to you because I, I think there's something here, and it's a covenantal view. A covenantal view. Uh, I believe that it was first advocated by a, so- a scholar by the name of Meredith Klein, Meredith Klein was an Old Testament scholar who taught at Westminster for a number of years, later at Gordon-Conwell. And he did a lot of work in the covenants, did a lot of work in, in uh, uh, the construction of covenants, and did, made a lot of connections in the Old Testament that I think in many ways were brilliant. I don't, I don't agree with him on all the points, but there's many points that I, I agree with him. And the, he points to the days of creation. And uh, this morning, I don't want to get into whether we believe the day is a literal 24-hour period or if it's an epic. I don't want to get into that. And if you have, boy, I'll tell you, when you you want to talk about it, man, there's fierce fighting that goes on over that issue. And I don't want to open that can of worms. Uh, uh, set all that aside because it's not necessary for this particular discussion. Just uh, see that there are indeed six, uh, seven days here. We read earlier in our service. Uh Let's think through each day for a moment. What happens on the first day? Uh, God says, let there be light. Right? And there's light. So we have this realm, if you will, of light and darkness. On the second day, what takes place? God separates the waters. And I remind you in verse 2 
uh, of Genesis 1. We're told that the earth at this point was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now at this point, there's this chaos, if you will, and the Holy Spirit is at work here. And Klein wrote a lot about verse 2. He wrote volumes after verse 2. Uh, very important verse. But here we have this, in the second day, we have this the waters. Uh, on the second day, the waters are separated. The waters that would remain on earth are separated from the waters that are taken up in the expanse or firmament or canopy, whatever word you want to use. You look up in the sky and you can see there's moisture up there. On a clear day, the sky is blue. If it weren't for the moisture up there, we would look up and it would be black. Outer space is black. So we have this canopy that's above, suspended above the earth. So we have this realm, this realm of sky and realm of water, if you will. The seas would encapsulate fresh and, and salt water uh, collectively. And uh, the waters above the earth would encapsulate the sky. So we have this other realm. And then on the third day, uh, dry land appears and vegetation sprouts forth. And we have this other realm, which is known as the earth. So in your mind, try to form a table, if you will, and put those three spheres on the bottom of the table. Imagine a little table you do on your computer. On the bottom column, you have, you have the light and darkness. You have the water and the sky, and you have the earth, if you will, the land. Now, above that table, to the left, right above the light and the darkness, comes day four where God says, let there be a sun and a moon to govern or to rule the day and the night. Correct? So we have the sun and the moon above the light and the darkness. And what Meredith Klein points out is what we have with the sun and the moon are vassals. Now, what is a vassal? Some of you may recall hearing from history in high school or college of a treaty known as a suzerain-vassal treaty. A suzerain is a sovereign. A vassal is a person who is under the jurisdiction of the sovereign. Okay, And what Klein is pointing out is that the sun and the moon are vassals. They're under the authority of the suzerain. They're under authority of Almighty God. And there's an arrangement. God has called them into existence and he has commanded them. So the sun shines when it's supposed to shine and the moon reflects that light when it's supposed to reflect that light. And these rule over the days and they rule over the night. And the various stars have been told to, uh, to rule over and govern the, the various seasons that we have. Our calendars follow these lunar patterns. Uh, so we see a vassal. Okay, now, in the middle of the column, above the middle of the column, on the fifth day, God creates the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. And he commands them to be fruitful and multiply. And Klein points out, here we have vassals again. They're being commanded to fill the, earth, to fill the oceans, fill the seas, fill the, fill the ponds, fill the creeks, fill the rivers, fill the sky. And what do they do? What have they been doing ever since? They've been multiplying. They've been filling and occupying these prospective places as vassals under the command of Almighty God. Now we might, naturalists will say that's just instinctive, but let's follow that back. Where does the instinct come from? Why are they instinctive? 
vessels because of this command. They are vassals. Now we come to day six, and we're to the right of our column, and above, remember, underneath is the earth, if you will, dry land, and the creatures of the grounds are, are created, and mankind, who is the apex or the high point of this whole thing, is created and is given a mandate that actually goes a step further than the mandate given to the fish and the birds. We are told to be fruitful and to multiply, but we're told to rule the earth and to subdue it. Now, Again, vassals operating under the jurisdiction, under the sovereignty of Almighty God. Now, all of this is to say that there's a covenantal relationship here with all creation. And that's what Klein is pointing to. Now, in his systematic theology, uh, Michael Horton develops this. In fact, his whole chapter on, the, uh, on human beings, his whole chapter on anthropology, if you will, is largely uh, resting on the studies of, of Meredith Klein. And I have a couple of quotes for you. I'm going to read them slow uh, so that we can get it. Horton writes, quote, The image of God is not something in us that is semi-divine, but something between us and God that constitutes a covenantal relationship. Saying not something in us, but something between us. To put it differently, it's not because of our soul or intellect that we are ranked higher than our fellow creatures, but because we have been created in the wholeness of our body-soul identity with a special commission for a special relationship with God. Now, there's many people who disagree with this, and that's fine. And that's why I want you to take this. I want you to understand there are many who will disagree with it. The more I study, the more I first started on it, I didn't agree with it. The more I work on it, the more I am agreeing with it. So if you find yourself not agreeing with this at the start, I would say give it time and let me share a little bit more. The covenant, Michael Horton continues, he goes, the covenant relationship is not something that is added later, but is intrinsic to our creation and God's image. In other words, what he is saying is it's the covenant. And I think when we read the Old Testament, we get this idea. I think it's easy to get the idea. Here we're created and we're running around and we're being what we're created to be. And then along later comes the covenant. But I don't really think, now I don't really think that's what's going on. I think the covenant is instituted right from the beginning. And what these guys are asserting is that to be human is actually to be covenantal. It's to be covenantal. Horton continues, he says, A legal command to love God and neighbor and to subdue any ethical threat to this reign, this original covenant is indebitably written on the human conscience. All people retain some sense of God as their lawgiver and judge and of the obligation to love. I think that is completely true. And in fact, long before I came across this quote, I was already on these lines saying this is our starting point. Remember earlier, I said, this is a starting point that I want to say to all humanity. Listen, we understand certain things. We understand that we're significant. But more so than that, we understand, you know, you're supposed to be good to the other guy. Does anybody here have to be taught that? In fact, when we're not good, when we don't treat each other with love, we know we're doing something we're not supposed to do, do we not? I don't think we need a, a, a lot of instruction. There, I think we need a lot of discipline there. I don't think we need a lot of instruction. There. We, all, we all know that and understand that. 
Horton continues, he said, it is not that this religious and moral sense is lost in the fall, it has been gravely distorted and depraved. Although we invest tremendous industry, creativity, and ingenuity in suppressing our identity as God's image bearers, the covenantal relationship between God and human beings is ineradicable. It doesn't go away. All cultures teach some form of this. Anthropologists will tell you that, whether they're Christian anthropologists or not. Now, they all have some form of this. Um, all, all people are in a covenant. I mean, according to the scriptures, we're all in covenant. I mean, we're born into this world into a covenant of works. That's how we're born into this world. And I think that's why at the end of the day, all of us understand one of these days we're going to have to give an account for our lives, every thought, word, and deed. We suppress that. We push that all the way back into our recesses of our mind and act like it's not there, but I think it's always there. It's always there somewhere, deep down inside. And as believers, we're in a covenant of grace. I mean, it's really the difference. I mean, Jesus comes and he pulls us out of a covenant of works and brings us into a covenant of grace. How does he do this? Because he kept a covenant of works. Jesus came and did what none of us could do. He came and kept all those laws, kept them perfectly, and fought word and deed. And then on the night before the night he was betrayed, he instituted a new covenant, which was promised by Jeremiah. And he says, This is the covenant. It's poured out in my blood. It's a covenant of grace. Now, don't think of that covenant of grace. Don't think of, don't think of the Old Testament as a covenant of works and the New Testament as a covenant of grace. You'd be misunderstanding what I'm saying here. Jesus inaugurated it. He ratified it with His blood. We've always been saved the same way. We've been saved by looking forward to this event or we're saved by looking back to this event, but it's still this event that saves every man, every human being. Is that clear enough? But still, you're going to come in either way. And what I'm suggesting is that we're, we're covenantal. We're covenantal. Uh, we're in this covenantal relationship. Now, I, I'm going to wrap this up here in just a few minutes. Before I do, I want to take you to the, um, to the New Testament, to a couple passages. Ephesians chapter 4, 978, if you want to turn with me and you're using the same Bible as me, which is the church's Bible. This is a passage that some of you are very familiar with because we looked at it in, our, in, our, in the context of our uh, talks on spiritual warfare. We looked at this quite a bit, actually. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, page 978. Uh, for sake of context, beginning back in verse 20, the Apostle Paul writes that it is not the, uh, that is not the way you learned Christ. Verse 21, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Now, look at verse 24 with me. And to put on the new self, created after what? The likeness. The likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So hang on to the word righteousness and holiness and then turn uh, towards the back of the Bible. You Philippians is the next letter you come to. Then you'll come to Colossians and go to Colossians 3.10. Here we hear about the new self again in verse 10. Colossians 3, verse 10. Page 984. We talked about putting on the new self. 
which, verse 10, which is being renewed in knowledge after the what? The image of its creator. Here's the image and likeness theme again, isn't it? And we have three attributes here. Holiness, uh, righteousness, and knowledge. And some of you have been studying the Shorter Catechism. will recall Shorter Catechism, uh, question number 10, how did God create man? Answer, God created man, male and female, after his own image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the creatures. Now, where does this come from? Here is the logic. The New Testament teaches us, okay, the, the Old Testament teaches us that we're image bearers, that in the fall, that image becomes uh, uh, in, in many ways corrupted in the fall. But in Christ Jesus, the New Testament comes along and says it's being, it's being renewed, it's being restored. Okay, we want to learn about the image of God. We want to learn about what this image is. Let's look at how uh, Christ is described as renewing it. What exactly is he renewing? And if we see what he's renewing, then we can learn what this image is. We can learn more about what this image is. Well, through this, uh, through this logic, if you will, through this methodology, we come up with these three words, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Now, along come the way, uh, there's a... Uh, a, uh, a commentator, a scholar, actually a, a uh, um, uh, uh, theologian, some of you would be familiar with, Charles Hodge. He's one of my favorite theologians, actually. He wrote a commentary on Ephesians. And in his commentary, he's picking up the words righteous, holiness, and knowledge. And he rightly says that knowledge refers to knowledge of God. Knowledge of God. That righteousness refers to moral rectitude towards one neighbor. And that holiness refers to our, our Godward relation known as piety. Uh, so what he's saying is this. This knowledge, it's not just knowing about God, like we might know about some celebrity we've never met. But it's actual experiential knowledge of God. We actually know Him. We know Him personally. And that righteousness is this tendency to want to treat each other the way we're supposed to treat each other in a way that's pleasing to God. And that holiness concerns our personal piety, our personal walk with Christ and with God through Christ. Now, all of this is to say, if we are doing this, if we're walking, as we increase in our knowledge, as we increase in our righteousness, as we increase in our holiness, we increase in keeping two laws, namely the two laws of Christ. To love our Lord, our God, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. And by doing so, these two laws are summarizing all of the laws of the Old Testament. So in doing this in increasing matter, we're increasing in our walk in covenantal faithfulness. Now, Horton doesn't develop it that way. I, I, I've taken it that direction on my own. I want you to know that. Uh, take it and study it. But what I am submitting is, I'm not saying that all of these other things don't play a role in being image bearers of God. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying that when we look around, when I look at my dog, I can clear up. One thing I can say about my dog is that my dog is not in covenant with God the way I am. I, I don't think there's going to be a judgment day come from my dog. He doesn't have to answer. In fact, the animals really got a raw deal in this one, didn't they? 
Creation got a raw deal in this one. Creation has fallen because of us. So I think there's something, I think we've been created covenantally. And I definitely think there's something to this. So in closing, in conclusion, what is man? In other words, let me put it this way. What are you? What am I? Are you a bag of chemicals? Yeah. Fair enough. But you're more than that. Are you a soul? Yes, of course. But you're more than that. You're a body-soul unity. Are you a lucky monkey? I don't want to go there. Do you? Not against the monkeys, man, but I don't want to go there. Really? A lucky monkey? No. No, you're a creature created by God. You're a creature with enormous significance because you're a creature who's been created in the image of God. And you have been created by God in a covenant relationship with God for a specific purpose of God. Amen. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you've answered our prayers and have given us attention on a very hot morning as we have wrestled with a very difficult topic. And Father, we thank you that you've been pleased to give us all this information. And we recognize this morning, Father, that we're merely touching the tip of the iceberg as we uh, look at these things, Father. So Father, bless us now, we pray, with understanding. In Jesus' name, amen.